I think you, the word soul is trying to talk about that feeling, you know, but then soul gets concretized or gets reified, you, you know, people turn that mm. idea into, you, you know, if there's a freedom to be gained from all of this practice, it comes out of that ability. And I, I was just lucky in that way. I, I was I was led very early to the people who I'm still close to and have, have helped me over the years. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mark. Thanks so hey. much for joining me. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Pleasure, pleasure to join you. Yeah, no, I've uh, I've been appreciating your work from afar for 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 a bit, and I've I think it's quite rare to just to give people context to find someone that is so averse in the Western. Um, practices you know in terms of therapy and psychotherapy but has that intersection within eastern philosophy and and in buddhism i don't really know anyone that has been able to apply those two things um i'm sure there are but uh, you know someone that's as well known and someone that's really talking about it so it really fascinated me because i've been interested in buddhism for a while and it's such a it's a practice they call it like more of like an applied religion, right? So it's 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 something yeah. that's always been resonating for me. But um, I would love to know kind of your history of being attracted to Buddhism, because from what I understand, you were it attracted you while you were doing your practice, right? As a as a oh yeah as a yeah even before it, yeah from when mm. I was very quite quite a young man it, it attracted me. I, I always think of Buddhism. You know, the most spiritual of the world's psychologies and the most psychological of the world's religions. So I think it was that uh, that liminal space between spirituality and psychology that, that drew me in. Um, you know, I ended up going to medical school um, to become a psychiatrist because uh, I knew I wanted to be a therapist. But uh, years before deciding to go to medical school and undertaking that whole Western training, I got um, pulled in by Buddhism. Really in uh, the first uh, semester of my undergraduate college days, I I took an introduction to world religion class, which I hmm. you know, had no interest in. But uh, I met a I, I met a girl who was taking the class, and I decided to follow her into the class. And the um, <laughs> like we always do, right? Exactly, you know. Typical. The girl Drizzle said, "Yes." Love. Um, so she was the vehicle, you know. But the the whole first semester was Eastern religion, so it was um, 
uh, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism and so on. And the Buddhist text that we used, which was the Dhammapada, which is a collection of Buddhist verse meant for householders, um, something about it was like the poetry of it and the the descriptions of uh, the unquiet mind uh, and the need for um, for meditation, basically for for disciplining the mind, um, really spoke to me. And um, there were little bits of Buddhism uh, in the college uh, where where I was in you know within the psychology department within the religion department. And I managed to like find my way to probably the two or three uh, graduate students or professors who were interested in Buddhism, and uh, yeah. they they guided me, and I and I um, uh, found uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Ramdas and Sharon Salzberg, all the sort of first uh, uh, Western messengers of Buddhism, you know, mm. into culture. And I found them early and studied with them and, uh, you know, got the Buddhist thing going inside of me and then took that with me when I uh, went to medical school and began to learn about uh, doing therapy uh, as a Western psychiatrist. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Like, yeah, yeah, I can't imagine that it's easy to find someone in kind of your local proximity that understands about Buddhism and has actually practiced it, has gone through, especially in New York. I just, I just can't imagine being able to find someone that's access, like that's as accessible. Now, were you at that point a very different person than you are today to be attracted to something like Buddhism? Were you more like, were you more like partying? Were you was your mind like very disorganized? Like, were you a very different person that and like that the ideas of Buddhism really spoke to you because you were looking for a change or? Or was were you already practicing a lot of these things, and and it was more of like a confirmation validity that like oh like the, there's actual practice that uh, does teaches these things that I'm, I've already been practicing. What what was kind of the I love to know like who you were back then. Yeah, well, uh, I was a 17 or 18 year old version of my current self, you know. So yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was the same person, but. I was I was searching uh, searching in every way, you know. Um, sure. So I think me- meeting that young woman, you know, I was searching, and then uh, discovering Buddhism, I was like searching, and various things were speaking to me. It, it was the beginning of the seventies, you know. It was the end of the sixties, and I was I had grown up in the sixties, so I was definitely influenced by all the countercultural stuff, especially the, the, the more spiritual uh, uh, stuff that was emerging in the culture. And uh, Harvard, where I was uh, going to college, you know, it was the sort of aftermath of the 60s. Um, so there were other people there who uh, had been influenced by the same cultural movements. And mm. what I remember I, I met um, 
one of the graduate students who guided me towards Buddhism was a fellow named Daniel Goleman, who uh, went on to become the psychology writer for the New York Times. And then he wrote this book called Emotional Intelligence. But in, in those years, he had gone to India already. He, he had uh, been in India uh, researching, uh, uh, you know, optimal well-being, looking for meditation teachers and had met Ram Dass and... Uh, uh, and I stumbled into his, uh, he was teaching a psychophysiology class, and uh, I met him and sort of felt a connection, you know, and uh, decided I wanted to befriend him and find out how he knew what he knew. So that mm. was part of the searching also. And he said, oh, you want to learn more? Go here. My friends from India are teaching here. So he was a real guide for me. And I, I was just lucky in that way. I I was I was led very early to the people who I'm still close to and have have helped me over the years. Was the girl that you were initially attracted to was she deep into Buddhism as well or was she on a different path like you No, she was on her own path. She she was yeah. a dancer as I remember and uh, okay. uh <laughs> you know um I I I don't know what uh, I don't know where she is or what happened to her but uh I'm sure she's well, shout out, shout out to yeah. her because she's really the one that got you on this path. It's Absolutely. it's funny because I was I grew up as a Catholic, but I never really related to it. But also when I was like 14 or 15, I fell in love with this girl who was a devoted Christian where her dad yeah. was a pastor, like very, very devoted and just like, you know, love found me into this different path. And uh, I never, I never stuck to it uh, after, after you know, things didn't work out. But it's, it's, it's so funny that uh, that was also the the path that you decided to go on. Except for you, it was continuous path. It's what really drove you to who you are today. Um, I would love to know, you know, so you you were interested in Buddhism, and obviously you you became you you were practicing um, as a psychiatrist in more applying like Western practices. So was it difficult for you at this point to like start talking about Eastern philosophy to clients or publicly just because I feel growing up in Korea and then having moved to uh, Canada and the US, it's still not something that, well, definitely not even 10 years ago that it was accepted. It, it felt like a lot of the things that we were doing in Korea or Japan, like was very woo woo and um I remember like taking Korean ginseng when I was growing up and that was like really good for you. And then I realized like there's no one takes this stuff, but then you only realize like that stuff is actually really good for you. And now it's people starting to accept it. So uh, what was it like? What was the reception of Eastern philosophy and stuff like Buddhism like back then? And yeah, that's, that's funny about the, about the ginseng. I, I had a friend in those years who um, uh, b basically was uh Making money selling Korean ginseng uh, no in, in, in Harvard in Square in, in in Boston to all to all the health food oh, stores. Wow. And, uh, he was like one of the first proselytizers of uh, the value of of uh, ginseng. Uh, so no way. Um, yeah, yeah. That's I wonder what pitch was. <laughs> oh, yeah, good for energy. You know, very yang. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, stimulant kind of thing. Um, was, was he Korean before, uh, or was, was he? No, uh, he was. Like he was. He was. Uh, he was like an herbal hippie, uh, you know, avatar. 
<laughs> but he was really into ginseng, uh, chewing it all the time. Oh wow! Root. Yeah, now I'm into it for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, within my little circle, you know, I found a circle of uh, people interested in Buddhism and mindfulness and meditation retreats and spirituality and so on. So I was very comfortable in that circle, and I remember. Uh, there was a, an older psychiatrist who was maybe 30 or something uh, who was part of a Sufi group. Um, and uh, he advised me when I was, um, I think I was finishing medical school at that point and moving to New York to begin my training in, in uh, psychiatry. He advised me to keep my interest in uh, all things spiritual very private when I was doing my training because the uh, guy who was head of the department um, where I was going, a, a famous psychiatrist named uh, Otto Kernberg, um, who came from uh, Uruguay, I think. Um, and anyway, he said uh, he, was a very, he was known as a very fierce uh, uh, psychiatrist. He said, if he finds out what you're interested in, he'll eat you alive. So I, I went into my training like, okay, I'm going to keep it very in the closet, you know. Uh, and and I ended up having Otto Kernberg, that guy, as a supervisor, a one-on-one -on -one supervisor. Um, and I began, and, and, and I liked him, and he liked me. Uh, and he was very interested in the feeling of emptiness that a lot of uh, young people who had uh, psychological problems were troubled by. And I was interested in that. And, you know, is that emptiness the same as Buddhist emptiness or different? Uh, and I engaged him in a lot of conversation about that. And uh, uh, when I finished my training, they offered me a job at that hospital. And I worked mm -hmm. there for a year as a, as a supervisor, as a faculty member. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to start to talk about my interest in Buddhism now that they've offered me a job and I'm not just training, you know? And was then I felt like, were you, did you feel secure enough to I, talk about I felt, it? I felt secure enough, but you know, to like, uh, uh, talk about who I really was a little bit and what I was interested in. Sure. Uh, but what I found was that all these psychiatrists who I was, uh, you know, who I thought were so straight and wouldn't be interested, uh, they were all totally interested. Like Buddhism was starting mm. to break into, you know, one of them was doing a group therapy for the um, uh, 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 the Yonkers Zen Center, you know, which was a famous Zen Center at that time. People were much more open and in interested than I uh, had known and thought. So that gave me a lot of um, uh, a, a lot of resolve and a lot of confidence about beginning to you know, write about, talk about, and then write about uh, how I found that these two worlds could really work together. Because um, that is what I was finding. Interesting. Yeah. And is it now still like a bit taboo for people that are studying uh, psychotherapy to talk about this stuff openly? I think it's become much more, no, I think it's become much more accepted, which has really surprised me over the mm -hmm. past, you know, it's been 40 years or whatever. But um, the way that mindfulness has come into the psychotherapy world, 
you, you know, first, there's this thing called dialectical behavioral therapy, which is very influenced by Buddhism. And then mindfulness itself as a technique of stress reduction and cognitive therapy and so on. It's sort of swept into the uh, psychotherapy world. And now a lot of young people who are training want to be mindfulness-based psychotherapists, almost to the point of excluding the psychoanalytic, psychodynamic uh, kind of knowledge and background that so helped and influenced me. So I'm I'm yeah. always talking about how you have to be careful, like don't don't hope that mindfulness is going to be the next Prozac and you know cure everything. Like let's use all the knowledge you know that has come down over the past hundred years or so uh, within the field of psychotherapy. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, I mean, because the thing with um, I think what's hard for people to grasp when it comes to mindfulness is number one is it doesn't feel as tangible i think for most people right like how do you define mindfulness which we'll get into how do you apply it in your life and what are the results that can come in and what time frame right people want fast results which is why taking a pill is so much easier because there's tangible benefits at a certain time and it's just like the unfortunate reality of how humans think um and why i think your work is so important now, when you got into learning about Buddhism and these Eastern yeah. practices, how what was the gradual steps for you to now start to apply this into your uh, psychiatric uh, clients that are probably more used to receiving the typical like Western practices and 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 uh, you know the, the therapies that they're gone to, right? Yeah. Unless it's their yeah. first time, but yeah, yeah. Well, I can give you. I could give you a sense of my own progression, you, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the first, because I was still in university, I was still in college, you know, um, and I was studying, I, I ended up reading a lot of old Buddhist psychological texts so it was sort of unusual, you, you know, I didn't jump right into the meditation. I wrote my senior thesis on what, what's called Abhidhamma, which is the, the Buddhist psychology. It's sort of like the mm. chemistry of Abhidhamma. the mind. Yeah, Abhidhamma, it means the ultimate doctrine or something. Um, and in the, uh, the, the Harvard Library, in the basement of the Harvard Library, they had all these texts that no one had ever taken out. But ba- basically, there were these, a lot of Germans, um, before and after the Second World War, uh, German translators of Sanskrit and Pali uh, were sort of the first to uh, um, bring this Buddhist psychology to the West. So they translated into German and then into English. Um, uh, several German monks, you know, who went to Sri Lanka and India and so on. Uh, so I found all these texts and then I wrote a thesis on Buddhist psychology, you know, how did, how did they frame the mind? How did they understand what uh, meditation does to transform the mind? So I had this sort of rubric of understanding. And then I, then I met these Vipassana teachers, you know, who were beginning to teach uh, 10-day, two-week, three-month silent uh, meditation retreats in America in the style 
of um, a practice that had been that they had learned in uh, forest monasteries in Thailand and monasteries in Burma uh, and from teachers in India. So I did a bunch of these silent, you know, two-week meditation retreats where I started to get uh, uh, my own feel for what meditation actually could and could not do, you know, just a beginning taste, but enough of a taste that what I had studied, I, uh, I could see, you know, where it was, where it might be true and where, and where it might be, you know, kind of exaggerated. Uh, but anyway, I got my own feel for both for myself, because I think that's what meditation offers is a, a kind of window or a portal into who you are in a deeper way inside, you know, uh, and also a deeper feel for what meditation was really about. Mm-hmm. So I did all that, uh, you know, kind of my, my latter years in college. I took some time and traveled in Asia. Um, I did it through medical school. Um, yeah. So by the time I was training in psychiatry, it was already six or seven years after I was first exposed to Buddhism. So I, the, the, um, the Buddhist thing was pretty well established inside of me. And then when you, when you train as a psychiatrist, you know, which means you go to medical school and then, um, and then you do a, a three or four year residency, um, it's different than training as a psychologist or as a social worker. As a psychiatrist, you're the doctor. And the way they train doctors is, okay, you're the doctor now, so here's your patient. So now take this patient and go do therapy. But they don't really give you any training in how to do the therapy. Um, oh, really? So, yeah. I mean, they give you a little bit of supervision and so on. But basically, when you close the door and you're with the patient, you have to figure it out for yourself. So what Wait, I had, what? there's no, there's no training at all given. What do you mean? Well, like there's, there's book training and there's like uh, supervision, but you're, but there's no other senior uh, psychiatrist sitting in the room with you, with your first patients, you know, you, you have to uh, do, do the intake, do the therapy and then, go to your supervisor and tell them what's going on. But the actual work, the one-on-one work, you know, you're the therapist, you're the doctor. So Hmm. uh, is that that because the... Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, is that because... Is that just like a gap in the training process in the medical system that we have in, in Western culture? Or is there a purpose to that where the idea of like being a therapist is is like an art form. So you don't want to necessarily tell a therapist exactly what to do. A therapist will have their own practices and it allows them to develop their own style of therapy. Is that intentional? I, I, I don't know if that's the intention or if that's the result, but, but I think that that when it goes well, that's the result. Uh, um, I think okay. the intention is more, everything in medicine is taught like that. You know, if you're going to be a surgeon, you watch a surgery and then, okay, you do, you, you do the procedure, you know, if you're, if you're um, training as a cardiologist, you, you know, at a certain point you go in and you're the doctor, you know? Um, so, yeah. so what I had to draw on was 
my own therapy, you know, because this is why it's good for therapists to have been in therapy. Uh, I, I had the way that my own therapist worked with me and I had my meditation practice. And I remember thinking mm. with the first patients, you know, I know how to pay attention to my own mind. I've learned that from mindfulness, from Vipassana. Uh, what if I try to deploy the same kind of attention to this person's mind that I've learned, you know, on myself? Maybe that will be therapeutic, you know? And uh, mm. it turned out to be. Like, like the, the, the patients responded. They seemed to uh, feel a... Um, uh, 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 some kind of safety with me. They like talking to me and um, I knew how to listen, you know? Uh, so that was my first, uh, my first take on, oh, these two worlds, they're not so different, you know? And, and then I began to read, uh, there are these famous papers that Freud wrote about um, uh, two physicians practicing psychoanalysis, you know, where he tried mm. to write a little bit. He was careful, but how to practice, how to listen, how to pay attention. And if you read Freud, he said things like uh, uh, suspend judgment and give impartial attention to everything there is to observe, you know. And if you didn't know that was Freud, you would think that was a Buddhist meditation teacher. You yeah, know? true. Suspend yeah. judgment and Very give similar. impartial attention. And so that was very encouraging, you know. So I and I actually began to write my first uh, comparative papers, you know, using based on those um, uh, papers of Freud's, you know, showing how those the worlds could actually line up. Interesting. So slowly by slowly, you you you, you decided to apply more of these different practices into your uh, sessions. And is it now at this point where it's such a core part of any session you do. Like, do you, is it like 50, 50 integrated where it's just, it's, um, it's like a, it's I a never wanted, practice in I, itself. I never wanted to be like um, laying a Buddhist uh, trip on anybody, you, you know? Um, so yeah. it, it wasn't like I was, oh, I'm meditating now, or I'm going to teach you to meditate, or we'll meditate together, or, you, you know, or here's uh, yeah. what the Buddha said about the Four Noble Truths or anything. What, what I uh, decided was that if the meditation was really doing anything for me, you know, if it was making a difference in who I was or how I how I was as a therapist, it should come through, and it should come through mm. almost invisibly. You you know, so I, I never made a big deal about actually being a Buddhist therapist, except in my books. I would you know I tried to talk about it because I was always trying to figure out well. Is it making a difference? You know, like, would I be a different therapist if I didn't have the mm. Buddhism or would I be the same? I don't know because I don't know who I would be without the Buddhism. But here's what yeah. I can see the Buddhism is helping me with as I am being really just a traditional therapist. So how do you when, know, though? Like, how do you know that applying these practices are in the end a better result for clients? Like, have you had clients I don't really know. that have... You don't really know. Okay. But I you could, know. right? You could, couldn't you have like clients that have, have practiced traditional Western uh, psychotherapy, but now have come to you that 
can now resolve issues that maybe they couldn't have with traditional practices? Well, I have a lot of people like that who have been in, in, you know, with Western therapists who had no knowledge of anything in the East who come to me. Um, but I don't know that anybody really resolves anything, you, you know, uh, that, that's a question uh, yeah. what's therapeutic about therapy, you know, people, people imagine mm. that they resolve once and for all, but, uh, but I think it's more like you get, you know, so familiar with yourself, so familiar with your issues that you, you, you know, how you relate to your own uh, um, issues, to your own history, to your own conflicts. It's how you relate to it that maybe changes more than mm. that you, you reach some kind of uh, great insight or uh, have, have the, the memory that changes you or resolve your hatred for your, uh, your mother or your father or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So that's I don't really probably frustrating, know. but... Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Sorry, no, that's what's interesting. You know, that's what's helped. That what that's what's maybe uh, um, sort of calming about seeing a therapist who's not trying to get you to resolve everything. You know, right. but uh, just to make peace with yourself. You, you know, yeah. how do you how do you really make peace with yourself? So I tried to show. You know, I wrote this latest book, uh, the Zen of Therapy, um, which is a year's worth of you know, randomly selected incidental therapy sessions, you know, trying to show how in the, in the little moments, you know, not the big revelatory moments should they occur, but in the little moments, maybe how the Buddhist thing is influencing me, but also how therapy works, actually, mm. you know, just in its, mm. in, you know, in the moment to moment way that therapy actually happens. So, Trying to, so I'm, I think maybe I'm trying to dissolve the distinctions between East and West or Buddhism and psychoanalysis. You know, like we're we're all just trying to to uh, make peace with ourselves. Yeah, you're giving people not what they want, but what they need in many cases, right? A lot of us want just the result, the the quick resolvance of all these issues and traumas we have. But you're saying no, this is actually what you need. Um, which is the beauty of or maybe uh, this is actually uh, what you want, you know? Right. Really yeah. just a rethink. Um, so going back to your point about uh, the Vipassana. So I did a 10 day Vipassana. I, I did it in Hawaii, like really? seven, seven, eight years ago. Uh-huh. Didn't know a thing about meditation back then. And it's really what got me into it. It's interesting that they, they make you do a 10 day meditation uh, uh, retreat first like you can't even do a three-day they just kind of make you go into the deep end really? which Did i thought was really Ranka, interesting it's a goenka style vipassana retreat is that what it was yeah well, i i did it through uh like i registered through dhamma d-h-a-m-m-a.org um yeah i can't remember exactly if it was that or not so i don't i don't want to quote the wrong thing did, but, they, did they play tapes um, of the teacher did they did they play recordings this is what i was going to yeah. Yes, yes. This is what I was going to say is um, it felt a bit preachy, right? Yeah. And I, because I didn't know anything about that world. And I come from, you know, people knocking on doors with selling Bibles and all that stuff. So like it, it immediately flagged like, oh, what's going on here? Like, is this like, is this like a cult or like, what's, I don't know what's happening. And um, 
I loved everything else about it. It, it was just that it, it felt like they were really trying to um, kind of wrap you into that world a little bit. And yeah. you don't have to stay for these sessions or anything like that. But um, I didn't even realize, like, was it, were they teaching you a lot of practices around Buddhism in these retreats? Because I, I guess I still don't know. And maybe people, many people may not know the association between Buddhism and meditation. Like people think of it as it's just kind of like a, a, a separate thing. But I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. That retreat that you were on was a particular kind of uh, Vipassana retreat that com it comes from one tradition uh, that's related but not, not identical to the kinds of stuff that I've studied. Um, so the, um, the preachiness comes, uh, I think, out of a kind of veneration, uh, more Eastern style, but veneration for the teacher who originated that style of teaching. Um, hmm. So, in a certain way, it's Boinka. preserving it's it's preserving this um, uh, uh, actually quite original and uh, uh, um, a forceful kind of uh, uh, teaching that this guy Goenka uh, uh, came up with that that has influenced a lot of people. But uh, but they're preserving you know it's it's done in a traditional style. And I think I'm much more drawn to uh, uh, having to discover, you know, using the basis of the technique, but then having to make it your own. Uh, so mm. maybe that's a more American way of thinking about it. But that, but that's been much more what I've been um, uh, 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 always drawn to, trying to get the preachiness out of it. But, you know, it, it, it's a religion, so it's always vulnerable to, uh, uh, to, that, to that whole way of thinking and being. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I'd love to ask you kind of and pick your brain a little bit about like the core tenets of, of Buddhism. And sure. from what I understand, it, it, it was really founded like, like 500, 600 BCE, like before, before yeah. Christ. So yeah. this is before like what we know of most religions, Islam, this is before uh, Christianity, before... Yeah, it was during a time, it was the same time as ancient Greece. You, you know, it was, a, I think there was a flowering of intellect and so on um, all, all over the world. Uh, uh, but it was probably 500 BC, you know, Socrates, that was, it was around that same time. Uh, but nothing was written down, you know, it was an oral teaching for a couple of hundred years. Uh, it right. seems that it seems that the Buddha was a real historical figure. Um, you know, he seems it, it's not all made up. Uh, um, he it, it seems that he really existed. There's archaeological uh, findings from uh, uh, you know that date back uh, almost to that time. Uh, but but it was an oral tradition. It was passed down uh, um, uh, for a couple of hundred years before anything was written. Um, uh, and the, the yeah, I was gonna say, did, did he imply this? Did he? Did he? Was his intention to make this into a religion, or was he just teaching? And when he passed away, people that studied his philosophies made it into more of a religion and this this kind of practice. Well, there, there were, there were already religions. You know, India was already deeply spiritual, 
Um, there were many schools, philosophical, spiritual, psychological schools, you know, they, those distinctions, they weren't, the, uh, those distinctions hadn't been made yet. So there were, there were, um, but the, the, um, the historical Buddha uh, studied with various masters of meditation. There was already meditation and yoga and so on in, in India. Uh, what became Hinduism? There was no Hinduism. There was no Buddhism. There were there were just these you know different traditions, different schools of thought, different teachers mm. in the in the forests. You know, you know. Um, so it's said that the Buddha studied with like the best of the best uh, spiritual teachers that he could find in northern India, where uh, it's clear that he was raised and grew up, uh, but that he was dissatisfied with. Uh, with um, what he found, you know, he was looking for some kind of freedom within himself. And uh, he was a very good meditator. And the various teachers that he went to were impressed with him and were like, stay with me, you can take over the the ashram, mm -hmm. you know, you can be a big teacher. But he was dissatisfied. So he was searching for um, something that wasn't available from uh, from the teachers of his time. So that story is interesting like what what um what led him to the revelations that uh, uh uh you know ultimately provoked his enlightenment and his first teachings which were very psychological his first teachings um but the uh, there was a big tradition of ascetic practices in ancient india you know uh also of you know, sort of transcendent meditation practices. So the Buddha did, he first did what we would call like TM or something, you know, but yeah. took it all the way so that he could leave his body and go into very refined, subtle, joyful, ecstatic states. But then when those states were over, you know, sort of like doing ketamine or something, when the when those states were over, he was back to himself. So there was no no liberation. There was they were just mm. peak experiences, you know. Um, and then there was this whole ascetic tradition where you, you you know you only ate a tiny bit and you slept on nails and didn't sleep and you know sort of drove the uh, the passions out of the body because the passions were considered to be you know that which bound us to suffering um, so the Buddha tried all that uh, became very good at that you know then and, and there the you've seen statues of the emaciated Buddha you know with his ribs mm. uh, uh, jutting through his skin and that if you read the sutras they describe him you know standing on one leg, uh, for hours at a time, drinking his own urine, eating, uh, you know, only two <laughs> grains of rice per day, falling over on himself. Seriously? And yeah. And it said that he, he got to where he was basically, you know, going to die from self, self punishment, like a, like a, uh, a really devout anorectic patient of our time, you know, it would be that, that sort of wow. level of self, um, uh, humiliation. This is all intentional. He did this on purpose. Oh, yeah. It was a spiritual practice. There's still, you can yeah. see that, you know, in India and in Iran and in, in uh, uh, um, a lot of Islamic countries, you know, in Christianity, that there are strains of that, you know, uh, uh, beating yourself as you pray kind of thing. It was that 
an, an, wow. an Indian version of all of that. But then he had a, um, a childhood memory. And it's the only time, you know, as a therapist, I'm interested in that. It's the only time that a childhood memory comes into play. Uh, but he remembered himself as a young boy sitting under a rose apple tree uh, in midday while his father was plowing in the field, feeling joyful, you know, uh, peaceful, the sun shining, the wind blowing, the tree uh, giving him shade. And he's like, why am I remembering this right at this moment when I'm falling over on myself, you know, from my uh, self, you know, uh, self uh, uh, erasing practices. Why am I remembering this? And I, it's, I think of it as the first uh, moment of self analysis, you know, in history, uh, hmm. because he doesn't turn away from the memory. He's like curious about it. And then he thinks, you know, maybe I've been going about this spiritual thing completely in the wrong way. Maybe the liberation that I'm seeking lies more in the direction of the feeling that's evoked in this memory, you know, but with a body mm. so emaciated, he thinks there's no way I could sustain that joyful feeling. So maybe I'd better take some nourishment. Maybe I'd better take some food. And at that moment, according to the story, you know, this beautiful young maiden appears holding a, a bowl of rice porridge, of rice milk, of rice pudding. <laughs> that uh, she's, bringing, she's bringing to the forest to leave as an offering for the tree spirit who uh, she thinks has helped her get pregnant because she's just gotten pregnant and, and uh, had a baby. And before getting pregnant, she had uh, made an offering to this tree spirit. Uh, and her, her um, nursemaid had seen the Buddha, you know, falling over on himself in the forest and run to tell her that that tree spirit was there. Uh, and so she comes bringing the rice porridge just when the Buddha has this, uh, uh, you know, comes to this intention. So he takes the food, mm. uh, nourishes him, and then he walks for three days to the famous Bodhi tree where he sits down under the tree and gets enlightened, you know. But that, mm. that memory is said to be the foundation of the middle path, which is the rejection of both ascetic practices and um, uh, the pursuit of uh, a, a pleasure, you know, sensory pleasure as uh, a means to an end, you, you know. So it's not rejecting uh, pleasure, but it's saying that you can never, uh, you know, you, you, you have to find this middle ground if you're, if you're um, yeah. going to be great. So but it's not hedonism, right? He's not, he's not, yeah, he's not, not hedonism and not asceticism. Yeah. But the middle way. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I have this image of, the, I have this image of the Buddha as like someone that is like this quite chubby, smiley Buddha. I, is it the same Buddha that I'm talking about? Buddha. Like, I, that's the joy. That, that, you know, Buddhism, Buddhism moved from culture to culture, you, you, you know, Always by force of its I'm idea. Mixing it up. Never. I no, see. you're not mixing it up. You're just drawing from one angle. You know. You, you know. If you if you look at the ancient Indian, the first the first images of the Buddha, they 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 didn't want to show. They didn't show his face. You you know. They only showed his um, uh, his hands or his feet mm. or an empty cushion that he sat upon. They didn't want to um, reify. Uh, 
the self of the Buddha because his whole teaching was about divesting yourself of yourself, you know, that, that you don't have It's kind of like Muhammad, right, in Islam. In, in a, yes, yes, in that same way that they don't want to show the image. But then the, um, about 500 years, the, the Greeks came to India, you know, Alexander the Great, uh, and the, the Greek uh, sculptors began to influence the Indian sculptors, and they began to do images of the Buddha. So you see the first images of the Buddha emerging about 500 years uh, after the time of the Buddha. Um, and there you see they, the, the sculptures were all about the life of the Buddha. So they took the, the, um, the sutras, which were just being written down, you know, as I said, it had been an oral tradition for a couple of hundred years. Then they started writing it down. So then the life story of the Buddha started being illustrated uh, on temple walls and in rock cut sculptures and so on. And you see the Buddha as a, um, you know, as a contemporary figure of that time. But another 400, 500 years later, Buddhism went to China. You know, the first Chinese pilgrims came to India where Buddhism had become a religion by then and there were big monasteries and so on. So the first Chinese pilgrims came down and took the texts back to China and started translating from the Sanskrit, from the Pali into Chinese. And then the, the Chinese began to uh, evolve their own version of Buddhism, which was fused with Taoism and Confucianism, you know, because that was the culture uh -huh. that, uh, that Buddhism was, was um, uh, merging with, you know, so those jolly buddhas you know it was it was such a big deal that you could be happy you could be spiritual and jolly you know so they mm. they the those um uh, uh more uh, corpulent buddhas uh, started to emerge and then it moved from there to uh, korea uh and to uh, and to japan and and zen you know the zen traditions began to emerge so I, I always think of, mm. you know, Buddhism coming to America and beginning to merge with psychoanalysis, that it's sort of another version of how Buddhism merged with uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Confucianism and Taoism in, uh, in China and merged actually with the ancient Indian traditions that the Buddha was part of originally. So it's, a, it's, all, it's always on the move, you know, it's a fluid thing, Buddhism. It's fascinating. And that must be why I thought of, because in Korea growing up and I've been like Japan and stuff like that, my grandma was Buddhist. And I think that's why I have this image in my head. And I looked it up. I'm like, why is Buddha so skinny? I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> you got to eat Buddha. He was everything. The Buddha was everything. Yeah, yeah. My idea was so different back then. And it might be maybe because back then, like in China and Korea, like even in North Korea, this still exists. Like the idea of being like chubby meant that you were like secure. It meant that you were yeah. wealthy and maybe there was yeah. some symbolism around that as well. Is that why? Totally. totally. Definitely. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Um, so the origins, like the original Buddha from, from India, uh, talk to me about like the core tenets, like the, the, the beliefs that Buddha was actually preaching. Well, his famous teaching, his, his famous teaching is the teaching of the four noble truths. And that, and that was um, after the Buddha was enlightened, uh, the, the story goes, his first thought was, no one's going to understand this. You know, this goes completely against the grain. 
it goes against the flow. You know, I'm just going to keep quiet. You, you know, I'm not going to try to preach or teach or anything because it's going to be too frustrating for me. You know, and then and then it said, um, Brahma, the, who was the the um, Indian god, the creator god. You know, but he didn't create the world. He just sort of popped up, and the world was there. And he's like, oh, I guess I'm God. But if, anyway, uh, Brahma comes to uh, the newly enlightened Buddha and says, no, come on, there are going to be a couple of people with little dust in their eyes who will be able to understand you. So try to talk a little bit, you know. So the, the Buddha goes out and, and um, uh, he had been meditating before his enlightenment with a couple of other ascetic practitioners. And uh, he, he comes to them first and they look at him and he's sort of glowing. You know, he's not like thin and emaciated anymore. He's like already putting on some weight, you know, and, but he's glowing. And they're like, what happened to you, you know? Uh, uh, and the Buddha says, oh, I've had this, you know, great understanding. And they're like, no, you've gone, you've strayed too far. Like, like uh, someone who looks like, someone who looks this happy, like, no, you can't, we're not going to listen to you. So, um, so they move on and the Buddha moves on. Um, but, uh, and, but then a couple of, uh, maybe one or two of them, a couple of people start to be turned on by, you know, the, the glow of the Buddha. And uh, he gives his first teachings. And his first teachings are of the Four Noble Truths. And that, that's the famous uh, teachings of the Buddha. You, you know, mm. the first Noble Truth is usually translated as life is suffering. You know, but the the actual teaching, he just said one word, and that word was dukkha. And dukkha, it's generally translated as suffering, but it really means it's not that 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 reduces it too much. It's really a, a, a closer translation would be unsatisfactoriness. Uh, the the Buddha said. Uh, Life is tinged with a sense of unsatisfactoriness. Dukkha, if you take the word apart, uh, ka is face, like face. And duh, it means uh, difficult or hard. So he's saying there's, there's an face. element in life that's hard to face. you know. And then he lists what that is. Old age, illness, death, you know, separation from the loved being um, held too close by people that you don't like, you know, uh, uh, closeness with, with the people you don't love and separation from the people that you do love. Uh, the, there's this element, even if you live, you know, 80 years, four score and whatever, you know, without getting sick, eventually you have to face death. And that the shadow of that is hanging over everything. So impermanence, you know. So mm. that's the first noble truth. There's no escape. And we tend to look away. We want to look away from it, but that doesn't work as a strategy, you know. Then it just sneaks up on you, and then you know suddenly you're having a heart attack or something. Um, so, uh, so the four noble truths—that's the first truth. And he gave these teachings in the form of traditional Indian medicine, where you know first he describes the illness so the illness is suffering the illness is unsatisfactoriness the illness is dukkha then he gives the cause of the illness so that's the second noble truth so what's the cause the the, the cause uh, it's variously translated as clinging or thirst uh, you know or craving 
But what he's really saying there is that that tendency to look away, you know, to cling to the pleasant and push away the unpleasant, to not want to see what makes us uncomfortable, that perpetuates the suffering, you know. So that's where mm. it's so psychological, and then and that's where it clicks into what I was saying before about therapy. You know, does therapy resolve something, or does it teach you a different way of being with the you know, 360 degrees of yourself, you know, what it is to be a person in this world, you know, to have a mind and feelings and a, an unconscious, if we can call it that, you know. So the, so anyway, the second noble truth is, you know, the, the, the cause. The third noble truth, again, in the traditional uh, uh, medical way of talking is to say there's a cure, you know. So the third noble truth is, the, the suffering doesn't have to be the last word. D dukkha, there's an, there, there can be an end to dukkha, which the Buddha called nirvana, you know, which is a blowing out. Nirvana means a blowing out of something. So what, what is it that's being blown out, you know? Um, the sense of craving, the sense of having to control what can't be controlled, the sense of having to perpetuate a self that we don't really understand but think we should have in a particular way, you, you know. So again, very psychological. And then the fourth noble truth is the prescription, you know. Here, here's how to get to the cure. And, the, and that's where the Buddha laid out what's called the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path encompasses meditation and concentration, but those are only two limbs of the Eightfold Path. There are other aspects of it which are called right understanding, right motivation, right speech, right livelihood, right effort. So the Buddha laid out a prescription, you know, for a path that could take you from a self-referential place of perpetuating suffering by not wanting to see the whole picture to changing the way that you approach your own mind, your own emotions, your own feelings, your own place in the world, you, you know. Um, and th so if you apply yourself in that way, the Buddha is saying there's a, there's hope, you know. So that's the, that's the hope of the Buddha's message. Yeah, I could totally see how this could be intersected, even just the way you described it, like the way you frame things in your mind and the way you feel things can be altered. There is so many, like the roots of it can be so intertwined with what, what you know, the, the, the practices and the purpose of what therapy is supposed to be meant for. Uh, it's fascinating to me and it feels, a it feels definitely more relatable. Like I, when I, when I grew up being, you know, learning about the practices of Christianity or, or Catholicism, immediately the way you talked about the first core tenet is that their life is suffering, right? Whereas a lot of what Christianity would teach you is that there's an afterlife. So death is not suffering. It's actually going to be the first step that allows you to have an afterlife, which is this heavenly place. And the, the, the life that we live is all based around how you're going to live in the afterlife. So it's, it's, it's like almost like this is the end result and this is the life you have to live. Whereas Buddhism is like, no, this is the reality of what life is. And these are the practices that you need to do in today and present day to be able to live, you know, nirvana. And it's, it's much more relatable for me because it's actually applicable. And, yeah. um, I find that yeah, really and it's not it's not totally 
there's a way of making even those two ways that you're describing make of bringing them together because i think mm -hmm. what the what the buddhist psychology is trying to say is that the way your life unfolds in this life you, you know is dependent upon the way you think or the way you approach your own your your own self your own mind that that one moment conditions the next moment you, you know so that if you give yourself over to greed and hatred and ignorance you, you know uh your life is going to go in one direction and but if you attempt to modulate or regulate your own being in the world your life is going to go in a different direction and you could almost mm. hear the christian thing of you know hell or heaven or purgatory or you, you, you know being dependent on the way you've lived this life you could almost read that as a sort of logical extension of a buddhist view you know uh, um mm. so i think it's ultimately resolvable some some people say that the whole Christian thing of the afterlife that that actually was influenced by an ancient Indian uh, a belief in multiple realms of existence, you know, and life after life, and uh, that, which which is the Asian sense of uh, uh, samsara, you know, that it just goes on and on. It seems believable. Like a lot of religion has been kind of added on top of each other yeah. is it not yeah with yeah you know, totally yeah and it's it's i guess yeah yeah Muhammad people have been a, people have been around for a couple of thousand years influencing each other yeah yeah and it's all just built on top of each other and yeah. um i actually yeah. wonder like how accurate do you think the greeks got buddha from a visual perspective were there accurate works back in the day to show the greeks that this is actually what he looked like or were there oh no yeah no it's totally no 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 i mean it's all apocryphal so we have no right? idea yeah uh, no the, the, I mean, buddha, the, the traditional sent the traditional statues of buddha are basically modeled after the greek statues of apollo i, I mean it's mm. you know a, a, an indianized version of it you know, cultural yeah. appropriation it's been happening it's been happening forever you know back and forth well, I think it's fascinating. I, I think the, the whole, at least in philosophy itself, what attracts me to it is, I think in Western culture, the thing that I've noticed is that it's always about more. It's always about being more. It's always about having more, doing more, you know, having more money. It's about eating more. It's about like being a certain person. Whereas like a lot of the practices that are taught in Eastern philosophy, it's like fasting, eating less, like literally just not eating, meditating, thinking less, removal of ego. And it's just a very different way to think that yeah. beyond even psychotherapy, I feel just a way of life. People can learn yeah. a lot. Well, about I think that's the Buddhist practices. influence. I think that's the Buddhist influence that you're saying. Oh, is it? You know? I think yeah, so. Like the idea of less. Okay. 
Yeah, the yeah the the idea the idea of less the idea of uh, um, eroding the individual ego you know for the benefit of the group all that that you know I think that's inculcated in the East coming out of basically coming out of Buddhism which was you, you know dominant at one point it's it's interesting to hear mm. you talk about growing up you know with your grandmother holding the buddhist thing that that's the same in japan it's the yeah. grandmothers you know uh so the the interesting thing about being a, a, an american exposed to buddhism is it can sort of start again you know like where sure. we, instead of holding on to the threads of the tradition you know the way the grandparents might in an in you know or the way my jewish grandparents or great grandparents might have you, you know it's like we get mm. to to confront the ideas of buddhism fresh and reinterpret them for better or for worse you know but it, it kind totally. of gives new, gives new life to the whole thing and then it's interesting that that feeds back to korea or you know or to japan like or to india where there's no buddhism in india you know except it it got eradicated um oh really uh, yeah people don't really realize that yeah it got it oh the, wow. the, the buddhism that went to tibet um there, there was a whole islamic invasion you know a thousand years ago and the buddhism at that point had become centered in these big monasteries it had become institutionalized and so the monasteries were easy to destroy um, so you could just torch them you know and and burn the books and uh, kill the monks oh, wow. and whatever so all the the, the fifteen hundred years of uh, tradition and knowledge, um, uh, uh, the texts that had been translated into Chinese already, and then into Korean and Japanese, um, uh, those survived. And various pilgrims from Tibet who had been studying at these monasteries in northern India took what they could and kept it alive for the next thousand years in Tibet. So that the Tibetan Buddhism is really medieval Indian Buddhism, but it, mm. it got, you know, totally eradicated in India. Uh, and only recently as it's become popular in the West have, uh, you know, indigenous Indian, South Indian people rediscovered their roots and begin to, you know, uh, study it again. So the whole thing is that that's what I was saying about how fluid Whoa. it is, you know, it's full a real, circle. full circle. Yeah. Or just the, um, uh, uh impermanence of, uh, even of Buddhism, you know? Hmm. And where is it the most practiced today? Like where in the world is it? Most people are, are you know, divote. Well, it's a, you know, unfortunately, if you look at, uh, Burma, which is, uh, you know, has been Buddhist, uh, even through, uh, the British colonization and so on. Uh, Burma, Sri Lanka, uh, Thailand, you know, but, uh, and, uh, Tibetan, uh, the expatriate community of Tibet, uh, but, uh, you know, if you look at what's happened in Burma uh, or even in Sri Lanka, uh, mm. you know, it, it doesn't speak so well for, uh, for, for Buddhism, but uh, culturally or, or politically. But, uh, but the traditions have survived in those places. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like what you, you know, kind of touching on that point of less and um, the idea of removal of ego. Uh, yeah. I kind of wanted to touch on this as our as our as our last touch point, sure. because obviously this is a prac. This is just the belief that I think most people 
particularly in the Western society, maybe around the world, just struggle with a lot. And my relationship with ego has always been evolving, but it's always something that I struggle with. And I love the way you put this, like we can be at, at its mercy or we can learn to mold it. And that really resonated with me because... Yeah, like sometimes you find that certain parts of your ego can serve you. And growing up, I think in some sense, like having this chip on your shoulders or not ever being good enough or, you know, having tiger parents being growing up in Korea, it served me, right? Like it gave me the grit. It gave me the perseverance to like work harder than everyone else and go the extra 5%, 10% more that adds up. How do you, I'm sure you've had clients that have, been similar situations that are type A personalities, but you know, how do we mold this so that it serves us? We can still have the ambition, we can still have the drive, yet still have that satisfaction. Or is that is that ever possible? Oh, I think it's possible. I, I mean, I hope that is possible. The um, you know, this is the most difficult teaching in Buddhism, but but also I think the most helpful, which is the teaching of selflessness. Mm. Um, so what is, or egolessness, you know, or the emptiness of self, like what, what, what are we talking about when we talk about that? You know, what, what was the Buddha saying, you, you know, that there's no self, is that what he's saying? You know, that, that all the, the cultivation of uh, the ego, like you're talking about, like, which is so necessary to achieve anything in the world. Is that just all pointless? You, you know, are we just supposed mm. to like leapfrog over that and be nobody? You, you know, it's really been a puzzle for, for not just for in this generation as people in the West are trying to understand Buddhism, but all along, it's the most confusing teaching and the most central and important teaching. So uh, I don't know that I understand it in the right way, but I've definitely struggled to understand it for, for my whole life. Um, and the way I understand it is that the Buddha for sure was not saying, just forget about the self altogether. You know, it doesn't exist. It's an illusion. He's not saying that. I don't think. He's saying we all cling to a notion of self, to an idea of what our self is supposed to be, you know, that is not consistent with what the self actually is. So he's saying we're, we're, we're all trying to make the self or ourselves, we're all trying to make ourselves into something that we can never be you know, hmm. more in control, you know, more a thing, you know, more a, like a, like a weapon, if you to take it that far, but more, more, a, a more of an entity, we're all trying to make ourselves uh, into more of an entity than we really are. And that hmm. in doing that, you know, in imagining like there's a real core mark inside of me or a real Sean in you, you know, uh, that in, in imagining that and trying to achieve that, we are separating ourselves, isolating ourselves, walling ourselves off, you know, from each other and from the world in a way that becomes toxic, in a way that uh, not only isolates us, but perpetuates our unhappiness. Because then, there's like 
only one little me, even if I think I'm a big me, you know, there's only mm. one little me and there's 8 billion of you, you know, and so the world becomes a competitive thing with that mindset. But if you start to, the, the word would be like de-reify, you know, if you start to take apart the, the entitativeness of the self, you know, if you start to experience yourself as less, less something, you know, less known even, more liquid, more fluid, you, you know, mm. uh, without giving up the, like, like, I'm definitely me, like there's some, there's some markness to me, you, you know, uh, um, I would have a really hard time putting my finger on what that is, you know, but certain qualities emerge, you, you know, mm. that's all fine. I, I had an early meeting uh, with the Dalai Lama when I was young and traveling in India, you know, and um, I remember him being very encouraging of the individual within me, you, you know, oh, you went to medical school, you're a psychiatrist, like very important, you're like, come teach, will you come to the school and talk to the monks, you know, about mm. what it what it's like to be a Western psychiatrist, you know, oh, he was interested in me as a person, you, you know, he wasn't saying no, you're like, you, you know, you're not important, eliminate the self, you know, but so it's much more nuanced, I, I think, but super important to uh, begin to uh, relativize your sense of yourself, you know, hmm. and, and that's where I think the if there's a freedom to be gained from all of this practice, it comes out of that ability to not take yourself so seriously. That would be another way just of putting it, you know, to, yeah. uh, to, you know, to begin to have a sense of humor about the, our predicament in the world, you know, being a person. Uh, Interesting. You know, it's, it's, it, it reminds me. Uh, yeah. It, it reminds me of this um, conversation I had with, a, with a friend of mine. I, I did this like, uh, Jaguar photography trip, and I had to share a room with 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 a guy who just broke up with his girlfriend and was really going through a tough time because he's the kind of guy that gets very attached to things, and he's was reading this book called Let It Go, and it was um, I tend to let things go pretty well, like I'm not really attached to materialistic things or a lot of things, and and it's I I feel like it, it's. I was having this conversation with him and he brought up a good point. He's like, okay, so if you, if you just can let go of everything and if your identity changes, it's almost like you're shedding a part of your identity as time goes past and in somewhat in five years, you should almost not be able to recognize yourself. Then, then who are you? Right? Like who are, what are the, you mentioned a little bit like some of the personalities and stuff, but like, what is the tangible thing that is us? Is there anything that remains the same despite us letting go and despite this fluidity that happens as we, as time passes, is it like our values? Is it, I don't know, like, I, it's hard to say. Yeah, well, that the Buddha was very interested in that. It, you know, that's a lot of what the teachings are making you think about. You, you know, I, I remember, I've, I tell this story sometimes, but about my, my dad, um, who was a scientist and a, and a physician, and didn't believe in any of the spiritual stuff. Um, uh, and we hardly ever talked about the spiritual aspect of things, although he liked that I became a doctor and so on. Uh, but when he was 
dying, he, he got a, um, a brain tumor, a malignant brain tumor that was on the non-dominant side of his brain. So he knew he had it and everything. Uh, cognitively, he was intact, but um, he knew that it was going to kill him. And I realized that I had never tried to talk to him about you know, what the Buddha, what I'd learned, if anything, from all this Buddhist stuff, but especially about going into dying and how to use it in death. So um, uh, I called him up and and uh, sort of very tentatively was like, well, we've never talked about this, but do you want to know any of what I think maybe, you know, I've, I've uh, garnered from all this uh, uh, meditation stuff? And he's like, oh, sh sure, darling, you know, go tell me. Uh, and so I tried to talk to him in non, using non-Buddhist uh, language about just what you're uh, uh, asking about. Like, like I said, um, uh, you know how when you when you're 20 years old or 40 or 60 or 80, the feeling you have inside yourself about who you are, it hasn't really changed. Like if you close your eyes and feel yourself, like you're, you're you, you, you know, mm. um, and that's consistent. But if you try to put your finger on that feeling, it's like very hard. It's almost like it's in, it's uh, transparent or invisible. Like you, you know, it's there, but you can't really find it, but you can sort of feel it. Uh, I, I said, what I, what I imagine the Buddhists are saying when it comes to dying is that if you can relax yourself, relax your mind into that kind of invisible feeling where you are who you've always been, but, you know, but, you know, it's not your identity, obviously. It's not like you're the doc, you're Dr. Frank, you, you know, but that, that internal feeling, you know, if you can relax mm -hmm. your mind into that almost invisible feeling, you can ride that feeling out, you know, as the body falls away, as the, even the mental uh, uh, constructs fall away, you can ride that feeling out. And there's some relationship between that feeling and what the Buddha calls Buddha nature, you know, which is your, your, the, the, your inherent self that you're born with, you know, the inherent wisdom of uh, that's accumulated. Um, so he was like, okay, that's, you know, I'll try, <laughs> you know, hmm. uh, but that's the best that I've been able to do in terms of talking about what, what, you know, what this might all be about. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I think everyone listening can point that out as you, whether you're 30 or whether you're 40 and, you can always relate to that inside feeling that you probably had when you were 20, you still feel now it's just maybe when you look at yourself in the mirror or the way you think is a little different, but that's not you. It's that feeling. Yeah. And I guess things even like as meditation. A child, even as a child, we have it, you know, and when you mm. dream, it's like, who are you when you're dreaming? You know, you're sort of dreaming from that place, I think. Yeah. What is that though? Is that like our soul? Is that like, well, you could is call it, 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 it yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, go ahead. Um, I think you, the word soul is trying to talk about that feeling, you know, but then soul gets concretized or gets reified, you, you know, people turn that mm. idea into, you, you know, into something that I don't know that we have to do that. But you, yes, you could think about it as that might be your soul. Yeah, I, I think this is a great point to end on to leave something people to think about because 
I don't think it's a conversation you and I can have that we can resolve this, but I think it's one of those ending points that can get people to think after this episode. So I, I think it's yeah. a great ending point here. Um, but no, I really appreciate this conversation with you, Mark. And uh, I, it got me thinking in so many different ways, reflected back to my childhood and even my grandma and, and hopefully yeah. it did the same for other people as well. Uh, I want people to know about your work and where you uh, are sharing your information. Obviously, you've got the two books that I really resonate well with is Advice Not Given, The Zen of Therapy, which is the newest one that you have. Uh, which we'll link below as well. Um, are there any other works that you want to share and, and where people can find you online? Sure. Um, I mean, I've written a bunch of books, uh, uh, all of them trying to talk about this um, uh, interface. The, the first one was called Thoughts Without a Thinker, a psychotherapy from a Buddhist perspective. That was you know 25 years ago now. Uh, and then the next one was called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. And, and I think those two books um, uh, also are good introductions to um, uh, uh, how I've tried to think about things. But the, the latest one I'm, I'm proud of because I, I tried to um, bring the, the um, everyday life of being a, a psychotherapist in, you know, uh, uh, out from behind the curtains, you know, uh, from behind the closed oh, doors and, and show, you know, it's just another aspect of life. So beautiful, beautiful. Well, we'll link that down. And um, yeah, once again, I really appreciate you, Mark, for, for coming on and sharing yeah. your wisdom. Yeah, it's a pleasure. All right. See you guys. <laughs>